we discuss the likes of true crime, paranormal, conspiracy, and folklore, and pretty much really whatever we feel like talking about that week. Basically, yeah. Pretty much. Basically. I'm your host, Christy. And I'm your other host, Alex. And this week, we are discussing um, a novel from Alex, I believe. I don't know the topic. We will get to it. <laughs> but to get us started, Alex, what is your distraction this week? And to clarify, it's not an actual novel. It's just yes, a very... Yes. A very long case. I mean, my notes are long, but who knows? You might get through it in less than an hour. We'll, we'll see how the night plays out. But my distraction for this week is work actually has been kind of weird. I've been closing a lot of client files, but it's, it's just a weird time for people, I find. Because there's people that are wanting to continue working. Um, and for those who don't know, I am a mental health worker. I help people work on their mental health related goals. So when people don't have any goals anymore or they're not really wanting to connect anymore, it's fine. It's totally good. But uh, my caseload is dwindling. <laughs> so that's kind of my need for a distraction because there's a little bit of a, oh, shit, I'm going to probably have to take on a lot of new clients. And I'm just anxious around people, as you know, especially meeting new people. And yeah, that's that's kind of it. It's kind of a lame one. But it is what it is. Yeah, but then it sounds like, like you said, you're you're used to getting like getting rid of people, which is yeah. a bonus. A bonus. But it's also like it's a bonus, but it's also yeah, like you said, unnerving. You're gonna get a bunch of new clients that you have to get yeah. reacquainted with, get comfortable with them, get comfortable with you, figure out all their government shit to deal with. Yeah, yeah. It, it's hard in a pandemic working as a mental health worker because you don't necessarily like I've I've had I've uh, I've gotten clients in the pandemic and have discharged them in the pandemic without actually meeting them during this pandemic. So it's kind of hard too to build a rapport with someone like, yeah, you can talk to them over the phone. I've got a lot of people that don't want to video chat with me, which is fine. Cause mm-hmm. let's, let's That's face awkward. it. Yeah. And I, I barely shower during the week anyways. I'm going to out myself right here right now, but for yeah. pajamas for the work outfit. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's just weird. Just got a lot of weird things going on, but I do have some good news. Oh, and I'm sorry to drag this uh, intro long because I know sometimes people don't like that. But I recently had blood work done because, as you guys might remember, in when we talked about the Roxbury murders, I mentioned I wasn't feeling good. I was having some stomach issues. Well, I was screened for celiac disease and I don't have it. So that's a plus. That's good. Yeah. I like got, carbs. <laughs> yeah, I fucking love gluten <laughs> so much. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's a plus. That's a, a happy moment. But Yay. I need Stop rambling. Christy, what is your need for a distraction? Um, my need for a distraction in today is actually at work the machine broke. So the extra machine isn't oh. working for the weekend. Bonus oh, no. that I don't work at that hospital specifically this weekend because I'm like, thank fuck, see you later. I work at a different <laughs> hospital this weekend. Because <laughs> I work all the time. <laughs> not my problem. I work there next week, but it'll be fixed by then. Exactly. Um, so that was like a it's like somewhat annoying end of my day. And yeah. this I never run in construction, so my window. I came home to that. Yeah. Because I feel like that ruins our recording schedules every time. But whatever. I mean. It'll end someday. And you have some good news, too. Might as well end on a little bit of a high note. Yeah, we both have good news. Um, yeah. I am never-ending changing jobs, all within the same corporation, but I keep moving from one hospital to another because I have yes. a working problem. Um, finally landed a permanent at a hospital with lots of hours. So that's Yay! Nice. Claps, 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 claps. Now I can officially find somewhere permanent to live. And... <laughs> 
make start making an actual life on myself and not be like, I move here this week and I'm moving to this hospital next month and this exactly. hospital next month. Oh, such such good news. Unfortunately, we have to move into some not great news. So if you live in Canada or you at least tune into the I don't know the news from Canada. You might be aware that recently there were 215 bodies of children found, I think it was in or underneath a residential school in Kamloops. I think it was under because now there's like yeah. this, this, these petitions that where they want to use like heat sonar or like ground penetrating sonar, like yeah. all of residential spots because they're like, who the fuck knows? I'm sure there's more. And we just wanted to say, because we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, that obviously our hearts go out to all those families affected. Unfortunately, Absolutely. this isn't new news um we as white women obviously can't speak to the trauma and the absolute horrifying history and past of natives that have lived in canada and whose land have been stolen and just everything that you know white folks that came over (laughs) have done and you know i i think what we're going to do is we're going to keep posting information and resources for those that are interested and we should kind of push a little bit you should educate yourself too because this is our history and we are responsible for the future and the only way we can change the future and you know make headways is if we learn about the past I will also say and I I think I registered for it today is that University of Alberta I believe is offering a free I think they've called it uh, I think it's an indigenous certificate so there's a free option where you can do the I think it's 12 week course or 12 Mm -hmm. like module course for free without a certificate and then if you want you can pay $60 for the course and you get a certificate at the end and it teaches you essentially just a bunch of different history about our indigenous folk here in Canada so we'll definitely check that out um I what I'll do is I'll put the note, the information about that course in our episode link for today. So everyone can go check it out and, you know, get educated. Because, like I said, we can't change the future if we're stuck in the past. So why don't we educate ourselves about the past and make some headwaves? And without further ado, I think it's time for us to get to this week's topic, a.k.a. the novel that Christy is referring to. So this week we are back to true crime and specifically we're going back down under to our lovely of a country of Australia, which neither of us have been to because we are terrified of Australia. Point blank. The spiders and the snakes and literally everything. Kangaroos actually kind of scare me. The Those kangaroos things? on steroids. <laughs> yeah, they can literally kill you. So that's fun. Um, but you know what else can kill you? Other humans. And those are also fucking terrifying. But I just want to pre-warn for triggers throughout this episode. Uh, I think near the end I talk about suicide. There's some graphic details about a body that was found. It's just, it's 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 going to be a tough one. So just trigger warning all around. But regardless, let's get into it. So dubbed as one of Australia's oldest cold cases, this week's weird distraction is about the mysterious and tragic unsolved murder of Betty Shanks. Before we dive into this case, I will give a forewarning that there are some details of this case missing. For example, date of birth, uh, victim background information, you know, all the stuff that I really like. And I keep doing this to myself and I keep kicking myself in the pants about this kind of shit. But I keep picking these cases, so that's fun. You pick the topics and you're like, I want all the dates and then you get no dates. Yeah. Yeah, the Capricorn in me is really upset about this. But anyway, so I... 
just kind of roll with the information I'm about to spit out. I did try to double check and look as deep as I could without, you know, driving myself into a hole, but there's some information missing. On top of that, there are a lot of speculated theories as to what happened to Betty, which in my notes I've tried to break down as simplistically as possible. Betty Thompson Shanks was born sometime in 1930 and primarily lived in Wilston, which is a suburb of the city, Brisbane. Our story with Betty really begins in 1952, and depending on the article that you look at and whenever her birthday exactly was, she was approximately 23 years old. Betty still lived in the family home, which included parents David and Elizabeth Shanks, and Betty's younger brother, who I believe was approximately 10 to 11 years younger than her. Betty's father, David, had served in World War I, where he unfortunately lost a leg during his service. It's been documented that Betty financially supported her family since her father was physically unable to work. During this time, aka the 50s, there wasn't necessarily a lot of accessibility for those who were disabled in terms of accommodation for work. So needless to say, as much as I think he probably wanted to work, there wasn't really a lot of accessible jobs for him to do. Mm-hmm. Even you want to say today there should be a lot, there still really isn't a lot. I can't imagine back then. Yeah, I mean... As an able-bodied person, I can't say whether we ha- we've we gotten better. I would like to think we've gotten better, but then again, I'm sure there's like a lot of people. wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of other people that would definitely argue that. It's also been noted that the family at one point was living off of government assistance, as well as loans from other family members to make ends meet and to help support Betty while she was going to school. So I can imagine that Betty wanted to help her family, you know, financially and just around the house afterwards, like after she was done school and when she was able to get a job. From what I've gathered, Betty was known as friendly, lovable, and just overall a person that you'd want to know. Unfortunately, I don't have any other information beyond that, and that seems to kind of be a typical statement that a lot of uh, a lot of unselfish going to have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, hey, you know, it's that's what the family said. So. We have to go off that. Betty completed a degree at the University of Queensland in psychology with honors in 1950 and afterwards was working presumably full time as a trainee personal officer with the Commonwealth Department of the Interior in Brisbane, a.k.a. a government job. So she was doing pretty good. She was working at a good place. I can imagine made pretty good money for the time. Maybe even had benefits, a pension. And at 23, that's that's just golden. That's fucking golden, man. Like that. I'm, I'm not going to say my age, but I don't have that yet. I'm older than that. <laughs> so I can imagine Betty was just. I can imagine Betty's family was probably really proud of her too. I mean, she mm-hmm. got a she graduated university. She got a degree in psychology with honors. Like, hello, that's awesome. Smarty pants. Exactly. So according to the Courier Mail article by Jeremy Pierce, Betty was expected to take some night courses on Wednesdays and Fridays for work, furthering her education. I'm not sure what exact the courses are. So kind of like how you're expected for your college registration, Christy, to take... Keep specializing and keeping up hours for your career to stay current. Exactly. Exactly. So, as mentioned earlier, our story with Betty begins in September of 1952, specifically September 19th. I'm going to break down a little bit of her day, which the details I gathered from the former Insight podcast. So on that day, Betty went to work as usual, 
And by lunchtime, she used her break to spend time with her mother, where the two got something to eat and reportedly did some shopping. Betty was supposed to grab lottery tickets for her co-workers, but allegedly wasn't able to because, you know, she ran out of time for a lunch break. You know, she was just spending time with her mom, doing some shopping. She probably realized she only had so many minutes left and was like, oh, crap, I have to get back to the office. Shit happens. Mm-hmm. According to the Insight podcast, Betty was chosen to pick up the lottery tickets because apparently in that previous April, her family had won the Queensland Golden Casket Lottery from a ticket that allegedly Betty had picked. Needless to say, her coworkers probably thought she had a probably a pretty lucky pick of the draw, so to speak. I wish I had that luck because I bought the lot of Max tonight and I hope to be a millionaire, but probably not. Okay, but if you do win, you will call me, right? We go on vacay. For sure. <laughs> if we can actually leave the province. I can take a month off to quarantine. I don't fucking care. I'm a millionaire. <laughs> yeah, I'm a billionaire. Who gives a shit? I mean, that's how the rich live. So just following suit. Anyways, so <laughs> yeah, they picked her. They picked Betty because she had obviously some golden fingers and just had some luck on her side. Betty went back to work from her lunch break in a a little bit later, her boss, John, would let her leave work a little bit early at 4.55 p.m. so that she could purchase the lottery ticket, in which she did. You know, she got the ticket. She's held on to her word. Now, I believe she went back to the office after she got the ticket. The only reason why I think this is because some reports claim that John, her boss, drove her to the lecture after work. And it should also mm-hmm. be noted, and this information, once again, I got from the Insight podcast, Uh, was that John was also taking the evening course and, you know, he would sometimes drive Betty to the course. Like, they would just, they would carpool, you know, Mm -hmm. save on emissions and gas. Like, why not, right? Save the earth. Exactly. So the lecturer of this course, his name was Edwin, typically taught this evening class to about 10 people, including Betty and her boss. Edwin reportedly would sometimes offer students rides home after the lecture or drive them to the tram station. I don't necessarily think this is like a creepy thing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when someone says, oh, and then they drove them home or whatever, you know, you get those kind of like Ted Bundy vibes. I don't think this is it. That's not the vibe I got off the information. So let's not jump. Friendly people give it friends rides. Some people can be nice, okay? We'll just put that out there. That's It can happen. So needless to say, on September 19th, after the lecture, Edwin did drive Betty and two other students uh, home after, although he dropped Betty off at the tram station for 9 p.m., in which she was the first one out of the three to be dropped off. Betty then waited for the 920 tram for her next stop, which was her parents' house. According to the book... I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks by Ted Deuce. I think it's, or does. Yeah, Ted does. It's D-U-H-S. Sorry, Ted, if I'm pronouncing your last name wrong. You can email us at weirddistractionspodcast.outlook.com. But he arrived at the Grange Terminal, a.k.a. the one she needed to get off, which this apparently took place at 9.32 p.m. With that being said, Betty should have been home before, shortly before 10 p.m. However, time started going by and she hadn't returned home. As mentioned earlier, Betty was fairly close with her family. I mean, she lived at the family home and it's been documented throughout that she was close with her parents. Like, she she basically told them everything. I, I kind of... Empathize. Very much a homebody. Yeah, and I kind of empathize a little, not empathize, but I kind of relate in the sense of, you know, any... 
anytime I go out anywhere, I tell my parents, like I tell my parents if I'm going to, if I'm actually going to the office during the week or like what day I'm going back, I text them when I'm home. Like I'm very close with my parents, even though I don't live with them anymore. So I can imagine she's, she's a good child. My parents like, what are you doing today? And I'm like, I'm at work. Where? And they just don't know where I am. (laughs) Christy's parents have no idea. I mean, mind you, half the time, I don't know where you are. You tell me. If I was murdered, no one would know for at least a week. (laughs) Well, that's why, yeah, we'll work on this plan. Don't worry. We'll work on your safety tracking. (laughs) But anyways, back to Betty. So yeah, Betty... Betty was close with her family, right? She told them where she was going. She told them when she was going to be home, this, that, and the other. So the fact that she wasn't home yet was alarming. They're kind of like, okay, like maybe she's out with a friend. I guess she had plans to go out on the 19th after after her lecture with a friend to go see a movie. However, it was later discovered that these plans with a friend were moved to the 20th you know, the evening of the 20th. So getting a little concerned here as time's passing by more and more. And it's been documented that at approximately 1.20 a.m., her father, David, called Edwin, the lecturer, to see if he knew what was going on with Betty, just to say like, hey, you know, I know she was attending your lecture. What, you know, did did you give her a ride to the tram station, this, that, and the other? And Edwin's like, yeah, I gave her a ride to the tram station. This also isn't direct quotes. This is just me improving. But essentially, you get what I mean. Like, he, yes. David was just trying to, David, I'm sure David and Elizabeth were starting to get a little anxious at this point. Where is she? And like, yeah. what's the time? let's start building a timeline. Exactly. So Edwin told David that he dropped Betty off at the tram station at 9 p.m. and that she had indicated she was heading home for the evening. Because of this, David then allegedly called the police, which good on David. Police came by the Shanks house after calling Betty's boss, John, who reported not knowing where Betty was. Once again, she went to the lecture. Edwin drove her to the tram station. Don't know where she is now. The police allegedly took Elizabeth, her mom, to the school where Betty had attended the night lecture, as well as the tram station to look for Betty. However, she wasn't there. David, on the other hand, waited at home to see if maybe Betty would return. Maybe she was just late. Maybe she caught up with a friend. We don't know. He was, he just waited at home, right? Mm -hmm. But as we can imagine, time just kept passing by and nothing nothing was coming up. There was no information. There was no updates. And mind you, this is the 50s. It's not like we have phones. We don't have tracking devices, what have you. Yes. Unfortunately, Betty would never return home. Betty's body was discovered the next morning, September 20th, at approximately 5.30 a.m. She was allegedly between 300 and 500 yards, accounts vary, from her parents' home in another person's yard nearby the corner of Thomas and Carberry Street. In one article from the newspaper, The Age, which was published on September 22nd, 1952, the following was stated. Three persons, including Traffic Constable Alex Stewart, heard screams on the 19th. Constable Stewart walked to his front gate but saw nothing. Next morning, he found the body of Miss Shanks 20 feet from where he stood the night before. The body had been lifted over a low fence and placed on the backyard lawn of a house in Thompson Street. So in terms of the nitty gritty details, I'm just going to say right now, here's a big old trigger warning because we're going to get right into the coroner report. So if you need to skip a little bit, maybe your stomach's not feeling so strong today. I totally get it. Do what you got to do. My stomach game is on point. I've seen too many fluids today to care anymore. Christy's like, I've seen some shit today. What's new? Literally. (laughs) Disgusting. Anyways. 
So the coroner on the case, uh, Mr. Schaefer, reported the following details. Betty's face and neck were swollen and covered with dried congealed blood, indicating that she had been strangled. Her arms were observed to be stretched over her head. Not sure if this was done post-mortem or not, but that's how she was kind of found. At first, police suspected that Betty had been sexually assaulted as her underwear had been removed and her skirt and her slit had been pushed up to her waist. From the Inside podcast, host Charlie explained that Betty's blouse had been allegedly torn open and that her bra had been pulled at. So it looked like someone was like tugging on her bra. After further testing, though, it was determined that there was no physical presence of a sexual assault or rape had taken place, i.e. no DNA evidence was found, nor was there any actual physical proof. Let's just put it that way. Awesome. That's a good thought to have. Yeah. You hear those in details. Exactly. There were noticeable signs of a reported, quote, severe facial injury in which officials thought that she either had maybe experienced a huge blow to her face or was kicked in the face. This was suspected as she had a peculiar dot pattern above what appeared to me after looking, I saw a photo, uh, to be above her right eyebrow. However, this pattern has also been suspected to maybe being from a shotgun pellet bag. So either it's like a shoe or boot print or from a shotgun pellet bag. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Based on what I read, it seemed as though there was blood everywhere. This was not a clean scene, let's put it that way. Splashes of blood extended over 10 feet and covered most of her clothing. Uh, on the top wire fence rail and just above the position of the head were two very light blood-stained hand marks. This is there- all for blood? Yes. There were reported droplets of blood observed on Thomas Street, and there were some more in-depth specific injuries that I will get into in a little bit, but this is mostly from what I gathered in terms of stated injuries on Betty. Cause of death was ruled strangulation. As mentioned briefly earlier, according to eyewitness testimony published in the Queenstown Times article, someone claimed that they heard two very loud cries before hearing a car driving up the street away from their home at approximately 9.35 p.m. the evening of September 19th. More people came forward during an inquest in 1953 where claims of a woman screaming and what sounded to be a motorbike were allegedly reported. A woman by the name of Mary Patton reported that she was walking ahead of Betty on September 19th and claimed hearing no calls no cries, and no screams. In some places, it's been documented that Mary claimed to have seen a man in a brown suit in the area after the fact, but she indicated that she didn't experience any weird gut feelings or felt that this man was like a potential threat of any sorts, hence why it was kind of a, kind of an afterthought. That's where my mind went. I was like, okay, well, maybe she didn't think it was a big deal to mention right off the hop because she mentioned it later. But it's also weird that like everyone else is accounting for screams and stuff and she hears She didn't hear anything, which is really bizarre. Yeah, so there were allegedly two other eyewitness statements that claimed that they also saw the guy in the brown suit on the street. However, I don't know how accurate this is because obviously we don't have names and we don't have specific time frames. So we don't know how much weight that holds. In terms of other eyewitness testimonies, there have been some claims that the tram conductor who was working the evening of September 19th, allegedly saw Betty and had a brief conversation with her. It's been documented that the tram conductor thought that Betty was another woman by the name of Ina Hamilton, who typically rode the tram at that time. And remember this information for later. It is important. 
Back to the crime scene. Betty's purse had reportedly been dumped nearby. The lotto ticket that she had picked up earlier was snagged, and her wallet was allegedly also missing. However, I do remember hearing in the Insight podcast, I think it was Charlie had mentioned that the family report, she, like, Betty didn't really take her wallet anywhere. Like, she didn't really carry it with her at all times. So... How's one but, person not carry their wallet with them? I know, when I heard That's that, weird. I know. Did you I buy stuff? Like, yeah. For tickets for your tram? I don't know. I don't know. I It was very, it was a really odd weird tidbit that I was like, huh, okay. I mean, I can't leave home without at least 17 things. My wallet being one of them. So, I I mean... It was the most important with the driver's license in it. Exactly. Betty's gold wristwatch had reportedly stopped working at 9.53pm and a valuable sapphire ring she was wearing was still on her finger. Which is weird because if you think this is what, like was a typical robbery, you'd think these items wouldn't have been taken since they are of value, especially a sapphire ring. Like, hello, that's some money. Yeah, yeah wallet, anything that you can get like, money for, something. Exactly. So the wristwatch stopped apparently at 9.53 p.m., but apparently it would start back up if you kind of gave it a hard whack. So you know how sometimes, uh, just for us technological folk, uh, when you are trying to cheat with a Fitbit and you, like, shake your hand aggressively to try and get more steps because you're lazy and trying not to... Who does that? I mean, I'm not... (laughs) Fuck, I just said myself on the show. Okay, anyways. But you know what I mean? Like, you know how sometimes you have to, like, tap on your your smartwatch to get the... Yeah, okay. So that's... Yeah, so essentially, if you tapped on the this wrist, uh, Betty's wristwatch, it started up again, which has led some to think that hey, maybe at 9:53 p.m. she took the hard, like the last blow to the ground. You know what I mean? But then again, it it's hard, hard to, to say. it's hard to say too because you could also look at it this way in the sense of you know, she could have been dead before the watch stopped because she was thrown over a fence and probably fell on the ground. Anyways, mm. not not something to get stuck on, but that's, that's, just, that's just where my mind is going. So there was allegedly some identified male DNA that was pulled off of Betty's clothing, which I will discuss later because it was tested against, I believe, two people in particular. As mentioned, this is one of the oldest cold cases in Australia, but that doesn't mean there hasn't been some theories of suspects or as to what happened because it's been what 69 years. There's been a lot of conspiracy. Oh yes. So this is a true crime episode, but we've got some different theories. Take it as you will. I didn't want to label it a conspiracy theory, but to me it's true crime anyways. So the first theory is that it was a soldier who had murdered Betty in cold blood. According to some reports, there was a military rehearsal on September 19th, meaning the whole town was covered in soldiers. They were just bursting at the seams with military folk. Australia was involved in the Korean War at that time, which took place between 1950 and 1953. In a Brisbane Times article by Tony Moore, there was a reported previous incident where an army driver was questioned by police as there had been some kind of reports that this dude, this army man, if you will, was trying to lure teen girls into his vehicle on the Gold Coast, which is approximately an hour southeast from where Betty's murder took place. So the incident with the teen girl, there's one in particular, allegedly took place three months prior to the death of Betty. 
Former police chief Ken Blanche reported stating the following in that Brisbane Times article I had just mentioned. And this is a direct quote. I think it was a soldier. He, the soldier, was a bloke who had allegedly committed an offense against a woman on the Gold Coast three months before Betty was attacked. And I'm not laughing because of the subject matter. I'm laughing because I forgot that I threw in some words in this quote-unquote direct Allegedly. quote. Well, yeah, because I my ass don't want to get sued. I'm sorry. I can barely afford food. <laughs> no, thank you. Anyways, so the army, army man mentioned was reportedly questioned, as I previously stated. However, because there was some confusion around certain times and dates, they were never really able to put any action further towards this lead. In the police report, apparently police had suggested that a copy of their investigation was to be filed with the modus operandi section of the CIB because they believed that this soldier would commit a sex offense using an army vehicle at some time in the future, according to the Brisbane Times article. So essentially, they just kind of put a little bit of a sticky note on this guy and they're like, you might do something weird later. We're going to keep an eye on you. We're going to we're going to keep tabs. We're going to label you with an alert code. Yeah, we're going to put a sticky note on this one because this this one feels icky. Put a sticky on the icky. Let's just put it that way. As mentioned earlier, though, there were no findings that Betty was raped or sexually assaulted as far as documentation has stated. And I think it would be kind of silly to neglect that a sexual assault could have taken place or could have been the initial motive. But things could have escalated before it got to that point. Regardless, former police chief Ken Blanche still thinks that there is still a connection between the Gold Coast Army driver and the death of Betty Shanks due to another reason, the suspected footprint on Betty's forehead. So as you remember, there was this kind of weird print on her uh, above her right eyebrow, was kind of a bunch of dots and stuff. Once again, to quote what Ken had shared in the Brisbane Times article, I formed the opinion that she was kicked by someone wearing heavy footwear because of the force that was used. I thought to myself, who wears heavy footwear? And I came to the conclusion that soldiers wear heavy footwear. End quote. What are your thoughts, Christy? Because you're, you're smirking. I see you and, smirking. And only soldiers? No one else wears heavy footwear. No okay. one else. No one else. I mean, I see where Ken's coming from. I respect it's not a theory. I get that. But it's, it's, it's pretty... A pointed, yeah. one solid pointed theory of one person or one yeah, and, field. And I cannot confirm or deny if they got DNA from, I'm going to refer to him as the Gold Coast Army driver. I don't know if they got it. I don't know if they screened it. That's not, it wasn't outwardly disclosed in any documents I read. Mm. It would have been nice to know. Or it would have been nice if, not necessarily, okay, it would have been, I think, interesting to note if they did do a DNA between the two, you know what I mean? Between the male DNA and then the Gold Coast Army driver. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like if they were that set on it, then why don't you run it? Exactly. So that's kind of theory number one. Theory number two involves an alleged unnamed officer. So I think this has kind of been deemed more of an accident that turned really sinister. Some suspect that a local officer had hit Betty on their way home, only to come back and find her still half alive, hence the strangulation and moving her body. This theory was somewhat backed up because of the suspected footprint, the fact that her body was moved, and the injuries. However, there is a little bit of an argument 
regarding the footprint theory. So don't kind of get held up on it. We'll get to it in a bit, but just don't get your heart set on that one. I get, I get the footprint, yes. But I'm uh, where you said the type of death, like the kicking and strangling, like it could be a cop. I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And he left, he left her there and he's like, oh, should I just come back later and check? What? Yeah. So... It's it's confusing. So an Ipswich historian named Lyle Reed had stated the following, which I found within the Queensland Times article by Joel Gold. Quote, Betty was struck with such force, she was thrown heavily upon the grassy area beside the asphalt footpath, landing on both knees beside the trees, and rendered into an immediate unconscious state. Reed then claimed that the motorcyclist then dragged Betty to cover the trees, picked up Betty's limp and bleeding body and callously threw her over the nearby fences. So it's kind of, it's kind of painted as like a hit and run and they think maybe a cop did it, but I just, I don't know. Like, I know we talk shit about cops all the time, but I feel like that's something really fu- Like it's, it's fucked. That's like really you know fucked I mean? up to be like, you know? this is my job. I'm usually yeah. like usually helping people and I'm not going to hit somebody and be like, oops, over the fence I mean, you. Bye-bye. That also could be argued, too, because police brutality is just fucking so common, right? So it, it's hard. It's, it's it's more common than, sure, maybe I'm in a hood yes. and hit and run where, yes, someone heard the scream because it's like, yeah. dead over the fence. But, like, the fact that it's like, it's a cop, maybe, maybe not. Well, and that's the thing, too, right? So Reed also believes that the motorcyclist came back about an hour later, sometime around 10.40 p.m., to make sure Betty was dead. I will assume, borderline speculate wildly, that this quote-unquote officer was shocked that Betty was still alive, in which they probably panicked and, you know, had to quote-unquote finish the job, which is, for lack of a better terms. Led to some strangulation. Yes. And another direct quote from Reed in that same Queensland article, quote, Betty's injuries were inflicted by a vehicle traveling at a moderate speed, such as a large motorcycle. During my long hours of research, I discovered certain abnormalities of Betty's horrific facial injuries. They were definitely not inflicted by a human fist or a heavy boot, especially the most prominent laceration inflicted on Betty's right mandible, aka lower jawbone. The specific injury was definitely inflicted by a sharp, targeted metal object which penetrated and fractured Betty's mandible. This horrific gapping was not caused by a large knife or a blunt instrument. It was inflicted by a large, gadded tapered metal object that measured approximately three to four inches long so once again it doesn't necessarily mean it's a cop some of the crowbar anything well, someone, of source. Well, yeah and i think reed is saying well no it's someone on a bike which once again i don't i wasn't able to find any information to see if any police like if police at that time were riding motorcycles more so than they were in cars you know what i mean i mean i've never mm. seen a, a cop on a bike i've only seen them in cars, pickup trucks, and horses. So, but but we're in Canada, so like everything here is ass backwards, anyways. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's it's just it's interesting, and I know people thought that, or people were stating that they thought, oh well, maybe it was a cop because it was found in another cop's backyard. It's like, but that that doesn't make sense either, right? Yeah, it and seems like someone dumped it stupidly in a cop's backyard and was like. Oopsie. Exactly. So just playing devil's advocate for a hot second, I kind of wondered if people were maybe thinking the murderer or killer was someone of notoriety 
And that's why the case hasn't been solved, because someone has been protected for all these years. For the last 69 years, they've been able to hide the secret, right? I mean, think about how many times people of power are able to get away with literal murder because of their job, because of the money, this, that, and the other, right? Sexual assault? A lot of higher-up people. Exactly. Well, even I was watching a TikTok today about how Caitlyn Jenner is running for governor, and deadass, the one guy was like, yeah, do you remember when she killed somebody? And I was like, wait, what? Yeah, Caitlyn Jenner killed somebody. But of course, we don't know about that because don't know if you know this, homegirl's got cash flow, right? I so, literally didn't know that. Yeah, I'll well, I'll send you I'll send you links after the show. But uh, yeah, so you know, I I just kind of thought, okay, well, maybe that's why this is such a cold case because if people think it's a cop, a cop would probably be easily able to be protected for this, right? Like, it, I, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's one of those where it's like, uh, okay. So, on to the third theory, though, which is that the attack wasn't random at all, but by someone that Betty knew. As mentioned earlier, Marie Patton reportedly walked ahead of Betty on September 19th, 1952, after they both got off the tram. Mary had reported seeing the man in the brown suit on the street during that September 19th evening. However, based on what I read, there were no concerns at the time about this guy. Mary didn't know him. We don't know if Betty knew him per se, but you'd think that, you know, if she's not getting any gut feelings, maybe, maybe it's someone she's seen before. We don't have those details, unfortunately. But because Mary... And this reported brown-suited man were on the street with Betty. It seems really ballsy that someone randomly would make an abrupt attack. Unless Betty knew them and maybe chatted with them beforehand until the street was empty. Which is just my thought process. The reason why I thought this was because Mary allegedly reported hearing no calls, no cries, and no screams. It's interesting, right? Like, she's walking a couple feet ahead of Betty. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, like I said before, it's weird that she was, like, one of the few that didn't hear anything, but very likely that a lot of times people get attacked, it's by people they already know, a.k.a. stars. Yeah, so I do want to shine a little bit of light, just briefly, on this suited gentleman, because there have been claims that apparently there was a man in a gray suit, not a brown, but a gray, which, it was dark, so, like, who the fuck knows actually what color the suit was, uh, that was observed to have gotten into a taxi with blood on them that same evening. So the guy, this guy in a suit reportedly called a taxi in, in that same area, had blood on his face and blood on his suit. There's nothing concrete about this suited person, so I don't want people to heavily focus on this information per se. However, I did see and hear it across a couple of different platforms, so I figured it's worth mentioning. But yeah, we don't know who this person is. We have no idea. Absolutely no idea. No, it was just no details. What the fuck? Yeah, welcome to my life. St searching for details and getting shit, basically. Ugh. So anyways, backing up to the general theory that this person knew Betty, some have put out that the person could have known Betty's routine and knew when she would have been walking down the street towards her family home, potentially hiding in a set of trees until Betty came by. But, once again, this could be argued because Betty's routine wasn't always to a T as she would sometimes wouldn't take the same route every single night because sometimes she would get a ride straight home from her teacher, Edwin, and sometimes she would have plans with friends. Like she wasn't walking down this same path every single night at the same time. 
So unless this person literally waited for a long period of time or they knew that she was taking the tram that night and beat her to that area before she even got there, it's just a little bit suspicious and a borderline a bit of a stretch. The yeah, it's either like a really serious stalker or like just opportunity knocked after somebody, unfortunately. Exactly. So the other downfall of this theory is based on the allegation that Betty didn't have any reported enemies. So that begs the question... Who would have wanted to hurt Betty? As some may recall from earlier in the episode, Betty and her family had somewhat recently won the lottery. So some suspect that perhaps whoever murdered her was aware of this and wanted to steal money from her as a motive. It's been suspected at that point most of the lottery money may have been used to pay off outstanding debts and to help the one struggling family get ahead if not stay afloat. It should be documented, though, that Betty didn't necessarily carry all the family's lottery winnings, even when she had the money. So, needless to say, by the time that she was murdered, the family, they were doing financially okay, but most of their lottery winnings were gone. And Betty didn't really carry a crap ton of money on her anyways. I mean, half the time she didn't have her wallet. So, like, she... If, they were, if robbery was the only motive, it just seems kind of odd, too. And even going back, like, they left the wristwatch, they left the sapphire ring. They took the lottery ticket, which, fair enough, but that's kind of risking chance, too, right? Yeah, why don't you take things that were worth actually of something, possibly, instead of something that's maybe, probably exactly. not worth anything. So, yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't really buy this. Exactly. So that's kind of the end of that theory. Not the greatest theory. So far... Nah. On to the fourth theory. So the fourth theory is that the attacker was an ex-lover of sorts. Right off the hop, this theory doesn't necessarily hold the most water because it's been heavily documented that Betty didn't really date and she didn't really have a love life prior to her death. Friends and classmates were questioned by police in which they all confirmed that there was no romantic leads of Betty with anyone. Uh, I know the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Christy. Police will ask me, they'll be like, so did Christy have a love life before? I'll be like, well, kind of? (laughs) Kind of? I mean, define love life. Define love. Hilarious. Continue. Hilarious. Anyways. So there is a weird incident that should be noted, though, being the reported only documented concern regarding a man in Benny's life, which allegedly happened two days prior to the murder. So September 17th. Betty's boss, John, had reportedly answered the phone at work in which a man on the other end had asked for Betty. Betty wasn't in, though, and the caller refused to leave a message with John. So when John was like, hey, like, she's not in, you can leave a message, the caller just hung up. The man called later on in which John picked up again and handed the phone over to Betty. According to the Insight podcast coverage, it was stated that apparently Betty had hung up the phone. She didn't really appear to be herself anymore, as if something was said on the phone that may have upset her. But Betty didn't make any comment about this, like at all to anyone. And it's unclear if if it was a personal call or work-related call, which is kind of weird, right? Like, anytime I have a bad phone call with a client, I'm talking to somebody about it. Like, I'm debriefing. I might not be, well, I'm obviously not saying names, but I'm like, yo, I just got off the phone with my client, had a really shitty conversation, this, that, and the other, you know, like, work that shit out. Yeah, and if, like, he like, gave her the phone and it was someone, like, say, maybe not something, like, super terrifying that was said in the phone that like, kind of just, like, made her turn into a different mood, but if it was, like, still a weird call, like, if you finished the phone call, you'd be like, well, no one was there. Like, that was weird. And, like, give the phone back. Like, it was, wouldn't be, like, completely different yeah. change in your tone and be like, okay, continue with the evening. Exactly. Just very, very odd. 
Now, there have been rumors that Betty was actually with somebody. Uh, in fact, going as far in saying that she was infatuated with a married man, estimated to be in his late 20s or early 30s. Now, this man has allegedly been identified as Leon Jackson, and the two were allegedly engaging in a secret love affair. So the wife killed her. Well, I mean, that hasn't been stated. Or the husband. Or the Well, Christy, you're just making your own theories here. Hold, hold your damn horses. But no, I, yeah. It's 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 definitely a theory to consider. Not one that I fully mentioned, but now I'm gonna have to add another page to this novel. Christy, way to go. Theory number seventeen. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, back to the notes. So as far as I've gathered, there was a woman by the name of Joan Wagner who came forward to officials saying that Leon had paid her to keep quiet about him and Betty's relationship after Joan had seen the two of them out in public prior to the murder. So, after Betty was found murdered, this Leon guy supposedly went to Joan and told her, hey, here's some money, keep quiet about you seeing me with Betty before she died. Because obviously, that looks suspicious. But paying off someone is more More suspicious, just saying. Leon. Leon. Leon's not doing so hot, so (laughs) there is more to the Leon story, but I'm going to leave it to the final theory as there's a little bit more to Leon and it gets wild. So just hold your horses, Christy. I see you. I see you staring at me like that. Just hold your horses. We'll get, we'll, we'll come back to Leon. The next and fifth theory was that Betty was killed by mistake as the murderer meant to kill somebody else. Remember when the conductor on the tram thought that Betty was a woman by the name of Ina Hamilton, This is where Ina comes back to the story, so hopefully you've remembered her at this point. Ina was 35 years old and was reportedly a hairdresser, but also a part-time receptionist for a doctor's office near the Grange tram station. Although different in age, a lot of people after the fact reported the physical similarities between the two women as looking a lot similar to one another. Ina reportedly would walk down the same road and near the same stop as Betty did most evenings. However, on September 19th, Ina reportedly got off work early and had arrived at her home around the same time that Betty was suspected to have been attacked. Allegedly, Ina had a really structured routine in comparison to Betty. She literally walked that same path every day. Charlie from the Insight podcast made a good theory in their episode that perhaps Ina would be more likely to have been the one that was meant for the attack because of the fact that Ina worked at a doctor's office where she would maybe have access to locked up prescription drugs. As we can speculate wildly, somebody might have wanted these drugs and somebody might have wanted to get a hold of Ina's keys so that they could perhaps get these prescription drugs. And a direct quote from the news.com.au website by Peter Hansen, quote, notwithstanding their age disparity, Miss Hamilton looked like Betty Shanks, particularly in the build. She was the girl tram conductor Reginald Walsh mistook for during her fatal and final tram journey. And she walked down Thomas Street through the dark and gauntlet of death created by the trees 12 minutes ahead of the murder victim. Only a strange quirk of fate prevented the two women from reaching the scene of Betty's frightful murder at the same time. However, and this is a big however, 
Other than getting the keys for the prescriptions, it doesn't appear that Ina ever experienced any physical assaults or was attacked prior to. It's not like she was... It, it, it's not like she had any documented, you know, encounters of people trying to steal keys from her or, you know what I mean? It's, so it's, it's, it's a, I think it's a good theory in a sense, but because there was no good spots theory, to it, but it's yeah. like, yeah, it has like flaws. Like you said, she's not targeted for specifically the drugs. That's literally the only thing, but it is weird that she had the structured schedule where she did everything the same, where Betty had kind of the same schedule, but was up and down different things all around, kind yeah. of different spots. So it's like. This one had the same schedule. That one didn't. But luckily that they look exactly the same, almost. Maybe drugs, maybe not. Who knows? Yeah, like, it's good, but it's not great. And it's not definitive, right? And it also doesn't explain who, right? It explains maybe why, but it doesn't explain who. Like, yes, I get, obviously, drugs can be a good motive. But had this, you know, doctor's office been raided before? Had there been thefts in the past? To me... That information is missing. Maybe it's somewhere out there. Maybe it does exist. Maybe I just haven't found it yet. But that was that's what's missing for me. So mm, there's some flaws. Exactly. So on to the sixth theory, which involves a local neighbor by the name of James Jimmy Coates. And I will say I, there are seven theories. So we're almost done here. Christy, I know you're hanging on to those horses. So just we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. We fine. We fine. So James reportedly was listening to a boxing match on the 4BK radio station on the evening of September 19th. Uh, James actually lives in the same area, so he is of grave importance. So he's in the area, he's listening to a radio station, tuning into the boxing match, what have you. According to the Queensland Times article, James further reported that the program ended at around 10.30 p.m., and that he went to bed about 10 minutes later and almost immediately heard a moan from outside. So Dunn listens to the radio station, gets into bed, and then all of a sudden he hears a moan, which terrifies me. Because I do not want, I, I still don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear a bird moan. I don't want to hear a cat moan. I don't want, I definitely do not want to hear a person moan outside my window. Because it means one of two things. Maybe three. Somebody's dead outside and moaning. Somebody's, somebody's making babies. Somebody's making babies outside my window, and I'm not approving of that. Or C, someone's trying to scare the shit of me, and it's working. So I don't like any of those options. James reportedly was a bit uncertain as to what he heard, so he got up, and then he heard a motorcycle pass by. In the Queensland Times article, James looked out the window in which he recanted he didn't see anything. This... Kind of sounds all one and done here. Like, you know, he heard something, he checked, that nothing was there, done, right? Why are we talking about this guy then? Mm -hmm. Referencing the Queensland Times article again, two writers by the names of Jack Sim and Lyle Reed shared their opinions on this neighbor and his testimonies. And once again, I believe Reed is from early, like er, an earlier theory, and he's also a historian. Just putting that out there. So Sim and Reed found it weird that James had reportedly heard all of these sounds after the fact of when Betty was suspected to have been murdered and how other locals heard the screams much earlier by almost an hour in comparison as to what James had claimed. On top of this, the two authors slash one of them being a historian had brought up the odd pattern observed on Betty in which they indicated that they had it the print analyzed by a specific expert in which it came back noting it could have been produced by a piece of cloth with a regular pattern. 
Reed and Sim tied the pattern as being part of a military gaiter, which is essentially a garment worn over a shoe and lower pants legs and used as kind of like protective equipment. So think of, it's kind of similar to like a soccer shin pad, so to speak. That That's how I envision it. Mm-hmm. Sounds, sounds something. Yeah, like it's, it. yeah. It's, I don't think they still wear them now, but hey, maybe they do. I don't know shit about the military. I'm going to be pretty fucking blunt out there. Safety first. Safety first, regardless. So the two men connected it to being this military gator that could have been used in the Korean War, which James, a.k.a. Jimmy Coates, was a reportedly a part of. So they find him suspicious, essentially, because his times are a lot different than everyone else's. Not only that, but they connect it once again with the pattern and, you know, connect it to potentially being from a military gator. James was part of the Korean War, which probably could have been wearing one of those. This hasn't really gone anywhere legitimately, though, in terms of, you know, this theory being pursued in depth. And apparently James stayed in that same neighborhood for the rest of his life, which to me is kind of a ballsy move for a murderer to do, right? Like, I know there's some serial killers that we know or, you know, some murderers that will stay in that same area, but they continue killing. It's not suspected that James has been tied to any other murders. So it's, it's yeah, just... Yeah, you don't it, do one and done and be like, I'm going to live here forever and pretend like nothing happened. Exactly. You know, it to me, it would just be ballsy for him to do that and then just live there and not succumb to his conscience. But then again, you know, it's you could argue this theory... You could be a psychopath. He could be a sec- exactly. I was just gonna say you could argue this theory till you know you're red in the face, but it's just it's one of those that like I get where they're I get where Reed and Sim are coming from, but it's also eh, okay, cool. I don't I don't know what I don't know what to do with this information now. Well, and not only that, but why would James want to kill Betty? Mm-hmm. I never I never saw a reason or a motive other than the fact that you know there was none, right? So it, it's it's just it's odd. So. Regardless, we're now on to the seventh and final theory, and this one is a stretch, it is weird, it is convoluted and confusing. Well, not really confusing. A little bit confused. It's it's a lot. So buckle your seatbelts, because this one is just wild. So this theory has us discussing another death that took place around the same time frame. And I'm just going to give a trigger warning, because I am going to be talking about suicide, and it's pretty... Pretty bad. So, Dr. Donald Carter, a local physician in the area, reportedly died by suicide three days after the murder of Betty, and both deaths were reportedly published on the same page of the local newspaper. Donald's death was also extremely tragic as he allegedly cut his own throat with a butcher knife. That's a a hard way to go. Yeah, I never really heard of any suicides like that, but it's, it's tragic. Uh, The death of the Ipswich doctor was a huge shock, obviously, uh, especially to his family. There were no outward reasons at first, and no one knew of any notes that were left by leaving any clues. I'm sure most people have heard what I'm going to say prior to, but I'm just going to say it regardless. Suicide can be different for every person in the sense that sometimes people are very vocal about their intent to attempt suicide, whereas others may be quieter about it, not necessarily leaving any clues or breadcrumbs for others. 
It's been documented in the Queensland Times article that Reverend George Johnson from the St. Stephen's Church had reportedly told one of Donald's sons, Doug Carter, later on that his father was overworked, had recently lost a patient he thought he could save, and was dealing with some financial issues. In that same Queensland Times article, Doug explains that his father was reportedly trying to purchase a house at that point in time. However, Finances were a little bit strapped to his assets, so it made things a little bit more challenging. Essentially, what I gathered was he was trying to buy the house in cash, which, like, holy shit, strong flex. Can't relate, ever. Can't relate. Too Can't much. relate. I can barely buy my Tim Hortons in cash, sir. Who carries cash in general? Exactly. In this day and age, I mean, it was the 50s, so I get it. But regardless, he was trying to buy a house in cash, which the strongest flex. But apparently all of his assets were tied up. Like he, or sorry, all of his money was tied up in assets. So he couldn't necessarily pull from that. But Doug also explained that his grandfather, so Donald's dad, had owned a grocery store and felt that because the family was overall doing well with money, this situation could have been easily resolved. Like Donald's dad could have just loaned him the money, called it one and done, bought the house, what have you. Maybe he didn't want to be so given. Who knows? And, you know, it's, I mean, I know personally, I don't like borrowing money from my parents. And maybe it was one of those things, right? You know, he's an adult. He's got his own family, kids. Maybe he doesn't want to be financially tied to his dad. Mm-hmm. Totally get it. But this probably just left the family more confused and trying to figure out what what was the reason behind the suicide. I think another question is, how the hell does Donald connect with Betty? I mean, obviously, the first oblivious reason as to why people connected Betty's death to Donald's death is because of how close they were in together in time. They both were reported on the front page of the same newspaper shortly after. Some people have speculated that apparently, allegedly, and I say this heavily allegedly, that they think Donald died by suicide because he was somehow involved in the murder of Betty. But that's never been proven. People yeah, I die know. every day. There's obituaries every day. It yeah. just depends on the day and who appears. Exactly. And at the end of the day, we don't have any necessarily proof other than this wild speculation. DNA found on Betty was tested against relatives of Donald in which it w- there was no match. Absolutely no match. So that kind of was a little bit of the nail to the, the coffin. coffin. To, like, yeah, exactly. Like, this is kiboshed. Exactly. But this doesn't necessarily remove Donald out of the picture completely, though, as some have speculated that Donald was murdered by the same killer that murdered Betty. Doug's brother, Noel, Noel, uh, Donald's son, who is also a doctor, shared in the Queensland Times article the idea that perhaps there was a double murder of Betty and his father with the same person being responsible. I think family members and those who knew Donald questioned the suicide ruling, which I know for some people... Like, I know some people might say that that's a typical response from families and friends as a form of grief. However, we can't just dismiss someone's theories, especially if it's from someone who knew the person that died. And a direct quote from the Queensland Times article, and this is a quote from Noel. The deaths were related. It was a double murder, and I believe the same person was responsible. Where is the evidence our father committed suicide? Once again, that's Noel's words, not mine. The Queensland police wanted his death to be a suicide as a second murder within 48 hours was beyond their investigative powers. We have to remember that this area was a very quiet area that probably didn't see a lot of homicides in the 50s. 
So I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Perhaps the Queensland police felt overwhelmed with trying to investigate Betty's murder, which obviously is a complete mystery, and then try to investigate Donald's death right after. Regardless, Donald has been cleared in terms of being a suspect of the murder of Betty Shanks, and I don't think his death has been looked into as more than just a suicide. But, the big old but here, there is another branch or another little tidbit of the Donald-Betty theory that is interesting. So, this is where you can release the horses because we're going to be talking about Leon again. As you may remember, Leon had allegedly paid off Joan Wagner to keep quiet regarding seeing him and Betty in public. Joan Wagner was allegedly a neighbor of Donald, aka Dr. Donald Carter. But that's not the only connection Leon has to the situation. In an online synopsis of the book, titled I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks by Ted Does... I found the following quote by Noel. Also, once again, Ted, sorry if I'm pronouncing your last name wrong. It, it looks simple, but I can't speak English, so sorry. Uh, but yes, this is a quote from Noel. We spend 16 hours over two days going through 14 boxes of evidence, and that is why we have so much information from the police files. Leon Jackson, as a close friend of my father's, an acquaintance of Betty Shanks, is the common thread to both deaths, I believe. He is also the eldest brother of David Jackson, a prominent member of the judiciary in Australia. Leon apparently lived 200 yards from the Carters, and according to the at synopsis by Ted, Leon was suggesting to Donald to purchase the home I had previously mentioned. So, needless to say, I think Leon and Donald were, were friendly. You know, Leon was like, hey, you should buy that house. Lives, like, 200 yards away. You know, they were physically close and potentially potentially friends. Leon was 29 years old at the time of all this and reportedly was an insurance broker plus a ladies man. He had a wife, he had kids, but some suspect that he may have had a little bit of a wandering eye, so to speak. Leon apparently was interviewed by police on March 5th, 1953, in which he stated the following events that took place on the night of September 19th. Leon informed police that on Friday, September 19th, 1952, he had left Ipswich at 5 p.m. before going to his mother's house in Ashgrove for dinner that evening. After dinner, Leon then brought his mother back to his house so that they could attend a wedding the next morning for 8.30 a.m. This is where his alibi gets a little bit weird in my opinion as he claims that he then drove to the Alpha Movie Theater between 9.08 p.m. to 9.18 p.m. to ask his friends, a.k.a. the movie theater owners, Lou and Shirley Varel, if they would be able to watch his kids while he, his mom, and his wife attended the wedding the next morning. So the reason why I say this is weird is simply because why would you look for a babysitter the night before you need them? But then again, as I'm saying this, I'm also reminded this is a man doing this so needless to say it just makes sense that it doesn't make sense i'm very confused yeah but regardless leon then shared that he had drove to see donald at eight brisbane street in ipswich which this was collaborated by a man by the name of claude brown so he actually went saw donald carter that same night on september 19th Due to the fact that he was reportedly 20 miles away from where Betty was murdered, it seemed unlikely that he would have been able to physically be there to murder her. Not only that, but other than the speculated idea that perhaps Leon may have murdered Betty because of whatever reason in association with this rumored secret affair, 
We don't necessarily have a concrete motive nor factual proof that Betty was with Leon ever romantically. I mean, I know Noel or Noel, sorry, had mentioned that Leon was an acquaintance of Betty, but nowhere was has it ever been stated that they were romantically tied. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'm I'm confused. So apparently Leon's DNA would be tested against the DNA found on Betty, and it was not a match. Leon was never connected to the death of Donald either, nor has there been any documented speculation that perhaps he had murdered both of them either. So, needless to say, even though Donald and Betty may have had a connection, we can't be certain as people in Betty's personal life never reported knowing her seeing anyone, nor do we know if Donald and Betty actually knew each other while they were alive, or really anything else about this theory that is concrete enough to say, yeah, this is what happened. I know, I know some people may argue that Betty and Leon could have been a secret affair that could have happened and hence why people don't know about it or didn't know about it. But then you could also argue every other aspect of all the theories as well, right? No matter which theory I'm going to spit out or which theory you're going to read or you're going to hear, there's arguments against it, which means it's not super airtight. Yeah, like there's things for each one. They're like maybe, and then you're like mm, probably not when you get to more details of it. And same with this one. The fact that they think there's the same killer potentially, and that he was murdered, and but they exactly. can't prove it. And he was in town. Yeah. I was like, you're you're stretching, stretching real far, real far and thin. I mean, hey, you know, you're allowed to formulate your own opinions. Obviously, we're not saying don't don't believe this or don't believe that, but just be mindful that with every speculation, there's gonna be holes especially when it comes to this case, unfortunately, which leads me to my summary. So it's been about 69 years since the tragic murder of Betty Shanks. Beyond the obvious heartbreak of a life loss, we also have to remember the aspects of her life that we do know, such as the fact that she was supporting her family. She was only in her early 20s and known to be essentially a very loving person without any outward disclosure of her causing harm to anybody that we know of. Similar to other cold cases that we've covered so far, this is just a reminder that, like, we here at Weird Distractions, Christy and I are not private investigators, we're not police, we're not detectives, we're not journalists. We're just two people that are trying to get educated more and trying to share what we find as a part of a distraction. Because, hey, we need to talk about this. We might like to believe for some of those things, but... me, Yeah. Not getting paid for any of those things, but hey, (laughs) kidding. So I truly do think that discussing these cases can be beneficial because the more we talk about them, then the more we learn about them, then maybe in some way we can get a little bit further in terms of reopening them or looking at different perspectives. There is a reward for anyone who can provide any factual, concrete information that may lead to the apprehension and conviction of a person or persons responsible for the murder of Betty Shanks. The $50,000 reward is one of the oldest rewards being offered in Queensland. For anyone who does have information, you can contact 1-800-333-00 or you can make an anonymous report online at crimestoppers.com.au. And that, my dear weirdos is the case of betty shanks thanks for that tidbit yeah i'm it's just it's sad it kind of once again i mean mind you the case of cheryl groomer is also from australia so of course that's where my mind went but it's just Mm -hmm. you know i understand that obviously technology wasn't where it's at now back then 
But I just wish there was something that could be done in terms of resolving the case or just getting an answer. Because, I mean, obviously, as I'm sure people have kind of already speculated, Betty's parents have already passed away. I don't know about her younger brother, but I'm sure there's other family members out there that would like to know what happened to Betty. And just other people that from that area, because it was such a quiet you know, uh, women were able to walk out at night without feeling like they were going to get harmed or anything like that. Like, people just probably want an answer just to put it and, you know, let Betty's memory rest, so to speak. No, like, no one hates anything more, especially us, than cold cases. Like, it's, oh, a, yeah. big pen, it's a big pet peeve. And there's a lot yeah. of holes. And there's a lot of, like, this got ran, this patch, this maybe matched. And you're like, but nothing happened. Exactly, yeah. And I do want to just clarify something. So when I say... And when we talk about true crime cases such as this one as a quote-unquote distraction, I mean that in the sense of it's also a good reminder to be reminded that, hey, shit could be a lot fucking worse for you. I'm sorry. Like, I'm just going to put that out there. Like, it's good to talk about these things because, A, we're becoming educated, but B, but we're also reminding ourselves that, hey, you know what, we have to be grateful for what's going on. And not only that, but just to be aware that there is shit going on. We might have our head stuck up thinking about work, thinking about this, thinking about that, but there's other things that are happening in the world around us, especially, this ties into what we talked about earlier, the Cam Loops situation with the 215 kids that were found, right? Like, holy shit, you know, we have to talk about these things because if we don't talk about them, then who is going to talk about them? I mean, I, I know there's other true crime and paranormal and conspiracy theory podcasts that will, but... We as a collective need to talk about it. No, and the more we talk about it, maybe then other people will be more aware of it, talk about it, be more aware of our past, and be like, hey, this, these are actual real problems we have to like reflect on. Exactly. Just bring them up in episodes. Like, no, this shit's our past. We need to bring it up everywhere. Exactly. So we know we don't mean any ill will when we say, oh, this is a distraction, because I just don't want people to think that we are diminishing the severity of it, but it's more of a sense of that's just what, what we're calling it. And we are more so looking at it in the lens of, hey, this is your moment to learn about something that maybe you didn't know before and to distract from whatever shit that you've got occupying your head that maybe isn't as severe. So yeah, I hope that makes sense. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. Okay, so before I go on a tangent and before I start sweating even more profusely, I would like to shout out my resources. So my resources include I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks, book by Ted Does, which was published uh, in 2014 by Boularong Press. The Courier Mail, uh, the 1952 unsolved murder of Betty Shanks in Brisbane sparks battle between publishers of rival books by Jeremy Pierce, October 17th, 2015. The Brisbane Times article, Betty Shanks, An Enduring Mystery by Tyler Moore, September 21st, 2012. The Age article, Search in Brisbane Murder, published September 22nd, 1952. The YouTube video, The Wilston Murder, featuring Mac Linden, uploaded by Vision Pictures on March 2nd, 2016. The Courier-Mail article, Police Tell of Wild Wilston Death Check, February 27th, 1953. The Ursi Australia Map website at www arcgis.com and that's spelled A-R-C-G-I-S dot com. The Insight Podcast, the Betty Shanks episode republished on December 30th, 2019. And just a heads up, the Insight Podcast is no longer, but if you do want to tune in, would recommend checking out Charlie's new show called Crime Lines. 
next on my resource thank you list is news.com.au website article quote luckiest woman alive by peter hansen on october 6 2009 the nestheprint.com website, Betty Shanks, Australia's Oldest Cold Case by Lamar Ali, April 21st, 2020. And finally, last but not least, miscarriagesofjustice.com.au website. And that is that on that. Thank you so much to my resources. Christy, can you head us up with where people can find us, where they can email us, where they can tweet at us, where they can say hi, and where they can support the show if they do so ch- please you can find us on anchor spotify apple Podcasts. we'd love a review some stars it's a free way to show some source support any other uh, platform you can find us on please feel free to email us at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com we're doing listener stories we would like some more of your stories because we need more for our episodes we want to do this more so make our june ones coming out shortly please feel free to send in anything it can be little it can be not even true crime it can be whatever uh, tweet at us, Insta, just doing weird distractions. We can hit us up on our Patreon if you want to do support us with some monetization. Patreon, different tiers, get some extra content. Also go over, we have some merch on Redbubble. And just lastly, a big shout out to our already current Patreons, Bailey and Tom. Yes, thank you so much. And just to backtrack a little bit, I think our first listener distractions episode comes out the same day that this episode comes out. So you're getting like a double whammy of distractions. Yeah, so again, uh, we are hoping to do the listener distraction episodes bi-monthly, depending on submissions. So as Chrissy said, could be true crime, could be paranormal, could be conspiracy theories. Once again, no flat earth. I don't want to friggin' read it. I'm sorry. No shade. I just don't want to read it. Uh, but yeah, email us, weirddistractionspodcast.outlook.com. And if you want to support the show for free, as Christy said, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, five stars preferably, superb way to do it. Because there's something going on, on Apple Podcasts where the more reviews you get, the more seen you are. And it wouldn't. It would be kind of nice to be seen because you can hear us, but maybe you can't see us. So you never know what will happen after that. Anyways, if you need a distraction... We get you. Bye. Bye.